0: Alright, Genesis 31 is where we pick back up. I believe last time in Genesis 31 we ran down as far as verse 30 together. Remember at this time we are tracking along, watching the life of... Uh, the next patriarch, uh, Jacob, uh, we went through the life of Abraham and Isaac and now we're looking at the life of uh, Jacob. And of course Jacob, remember, has been in the area of Pat and Aram uh, for about 20 years at this point. Uh, he's uh, inherited the two wives of his uncle uh, Laban that were his the daughters of Laban. Uh, Rachel and Leah at this time he has 11 children and we saw towards the end of that sort of 20 year period that God had continued to bless Uh, Jacob, in fact, the end of chapter 30 just simply tells us that Jacob became exceedingly prosperous. He had large flocks, and because God was beginning to just uh, bring him through a different season in his life, it seems that also God was stirring. uh, The nest was becoming unsettled. He was recognizing that the, the season was changing, that things weren't the way they once had been before in the prior season. And again, God was bringing him through a process, preparing him ultimately uh, to step into the fullness of what he had for him. And that, of course, was to ultimately go back to the land where he had sort of been sent out of for a while. And and again, we see this pattern many times in Scripture where God's call comes upon a man's life uh, and the call of God comes, but yet the the uh you know culmination and the the fulfillment of that call a lot of times is something that comes at a later point and a lot of times god's calling will come upon someone's life like You know, the life of Moses, where God puts his calling upon Moses' life, but yet then Moses ends up spending 40 years on the backside of the desert learning lessons, and God's preparing him and cultivating him for the ultimate plan and purpose he has for his life. We see the same with David. Again, God anoints him, calls him. He's the the chosen king of Israel, but yet he's the rejected. Uh, King for many, many years, and and he spends upwards of 10 to 15 years in the wilderness. Again, God's kind of got him in his crucible. He's training David, he's cultivating his character, he's preparing him ultimately. For the plan and purpose God had for him and we see this pattern throughout the word of God where many times the Lord does this and it seems the same with Jacob. Jacob had certain things in his personality in his nature that God really needed to wean out of him. God needed to uh, shape and further develop his character and God was using these everyday processes of life as he went away for 20 years because of some problems back at home remember between he and his brother Esau who Developed the tremendous hatred and animosity for him, and he's been here in Aram for about 20 years now, and things are beginning to change. And because of that, remember we saw Jacob pulled together uh, Rachel and Leah, and said to them, "Look, I, I can tell things don't seem the same between me and your father Laban, and, and and the Lord has been speaking to me. He's revealed to me that it is time to now return back to the land." And to inherit the promises of God that were intended for Jacob as, again, the the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And being concerned that Laban wouldn't take too well to this, uh, his daughters and his grandchildren being taken away from them. And most grandparents aren't real thrilled or parents about that kind of a thing when, hey, uh, you know, we're moving to you know, the other side of the country or 500 miles away or whatever, and Jacob's realized this probably isn't going to be a very well-received thing. So he kind of snuck off without announcing that he was leaving. Again, remember, there was a lot of tension between uh, Jacob and Laban. Laban was his employer, and he seems to have constantly been ripping Jacob off. He was changing his wages all the time. He was a master manipulator and deceiver, just like Jacob. And Jacob finally met his match, but it caused a lot of friction between these two and their personalities. Uh, So Jacob, not wanting to deal with any of his controversy, tried to slip away quickly, and without announcing his departure while Laban was out, a few days' journey away, he kind of just unannouncedly sneaks off when he did remember what took place was that Uh, Rachel, one of his wives, stole her father's household idols. She actually stole the gods, the little idols, the teraphim that were there in the house. Well, when Laban realizes what Jacob has done, that he's kind of just taken off without even announcing or having any kind of a farewell or a goodbye thing, and then on top of that, Laban thinks that things have been stolen from his home, he's fiercely angry, he begins to pursue Jacob, and I believe with the intention, clearly, of harming him, maybe even killing him, because he is so angry and upset with him at this point. And we left off at the spot where sort of these two—Laban has now caught up with Jacob and his caravan. Again, he has to move a lot slower because he's got 11 kids, and and, and you know that always have you move a little slower. I can, can imagine 11. I used to be challenging moving three kids, you know, from one place to another with all the car seats and everything else. And and here he's got 11 kids and quite a, a caravan. So Laban catches up with him rather quickly within a matter of days. And we're right in the scene now where Laban is angrily confronting Jacob for taking off the way he did. In fact, let's just go back to verse 27, kind of pick up the the idea here of where we're going. Uh, Laban speaking to Jacob, verse 26 is, What have you done that you've stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives, taken with a sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs and timbrel and a harp. And of course that was a certainly a dishonest statement. But again, he's just trying to lay the guilt trip on him. And sometimes father-in-laws can do that kind of thing. So he's just, what are you doing? I would have sent you away with a goodbye party, he says. And verse 28, and you didn't even allow me to... You know, kiss my sons and my daughters to say goodbye to my grandchildren. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power, notice, to harm you. And I think that would have been his intention had not God intervened and spoken to Laban to say, Don't you dare touch my servant, Jacob, he's my chosen servant. So, again, it's in my power to harm you, but notice the God of your father spoke to me last night saying... Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. And I love that, how God is able, again, this is a pagan man, God is able to protect us, to do whatever he needs to do, even to to speak into the life of someone who's not even a God-fearing or a God-honoring person. Uh, And he's able to come to our aid and to rebuke someone or to speak to someone. And God spoke sternly, apparently, to Laban, saying, When you catch him, don't you dare even... Say something that I would perceive as being inappropriate, uh, again, because he's my servant, so he says, you know, your God is the one who confronted me, but notice the concern, so verse 30, this is where we left off last time, and now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house, but, again, remember we left with this, but why did you steal my God's? You know, what, And what's the matter with you? You actually stole, and, and this is his real bone of contention here. He feels like that he has things stolen from his property, and most importantly, by golly, you've stolen my gods. I need my gods, and we talked about last time that something's really wrong when you have a god that can be stolen. And when somebody can steal your god, you got the wrong god. Uh, that, that's a definite clear thing, but nonetheless, these little idols, these teraphim are missing, and Laban is now confronting Jacob because he believes that he has stolen them in the midst of this quick departure. Well, verse 31, we come to Jacob's answer. Jacob answered and said to Laban, well, the reason I left quickly, he says, again, because I was afraid. For I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. So Jacob answers honestly. He says, the reason I left was I was concerned that you wouldn't respond well To my saying, I was going to leave. And and again, unfortunately, rather than just trusting the Lord, uh, Jacob, again here, he's resorting to his own devices. He tries to sneak away rather than deal with something, rather than face confrontation or just open communication with his family member, with his father-in-law. He tries to take the avoidance path where he just slips out the back door. And you know what? That's never a good thing. I I don't think any one of us really likes confrontation. Let me change that. I've met a few people who I think actually like confrontation. I think a few people do. Most people, typically, don't like confrontation. But it doesn't mean that it's something that we can always avoid. Sometimes the right thing to do is to still openly communicate and confront things, even if it's awkward. Especially when it comes to important issues and all the more when those important issues deal with our family members. If there's anywhere that there should be open, honest, direct communication, it should be between family members. And here Jacob is dealing with a situation with his own father-in-law and rather than communicate openly and honestly he tried to take that avoidance path and notice it just creates more harm than good. It didn't resolve anything, in fact all it really did was sort of put logs on a fire and now there's even more anger and contention and Jacob has to say, "Well, I just I was afraid. I thought that you'd just take your daughters from me." Verse 32, he now deals with the question of who stole my gods. He says, "With whomever you find your gods, <clears throat> excuse me, do not let him live in the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you." Notice for Jacob, this is key, did not know that Rachel, his wife, had stolen them. So Jacob emphatically, uh, you know, he becomes indignant. I can't believe that you would accuse me of stealing something from your property. I was a faithful, loyal servant to you for 20 years. And he's thinking, I've never taken anything from you. He'll get to that point in a few minutes. You can tell by the outflow of his frustration over this indictment against him. And so strongly does he feel about it. Notice he says, look, with whomever you find my gods among my caravan that's with me, he says, put them to death. If somebody's stolen your stuff, I agree with you, they deserve to die. They shouldn't have stolen your stuff. And he that strongly feels like that this is an unfair indictment, that he can't even believe he would be falsely accused of such a thing, that he says, so ever you find your stuff, he says, don't let him live in the presence of our brethren. Identify what I have and take it back with you. Verse 32, the end of it is very critical for Jacob, notice, didn't know that Rachel, his wife, had stolen those gods. Now, I bring that up because notice the very foolish statement that Jacob is making. He just pronounced a death curse upon his own wife. Why? For one very simple reason. Because there was not healthy communication within the marriage relationship. Here she had done something and she did not tell her husband about it. And As a result of that, here's her husband making further mistakes and making foolish statements and poor decisions because he's not informed of something that his own spouse has done. And I'll tell you something, you want one of the most destructive things in any marriage relationship and that is this, is start hiding things from your spouse don't tell your spouse certain things you want to ruin a marriage real quick you want to cause a lot of problems begin to diminish the importance of open honest communication and here she was hiding something she had stolen something she had done something she had taken something and for whatever reason well i, I better not tell Jacob i've done this because for whatever reason she she consciously realizes well it wouldn't be good to tell him what i've done because i feel ashamed about it or He would question me for it, or he would say, you shouldn't do that, we need to go bring... So instead, she hides things from her husband, she doesn't communicate regarding what she's done, and because of a lack of communication, a major eruption begins to take place, and he's already making statements that he shouldn't, and it's causing jeopardy to the entire family relationship, and really, real danger for the marriage relationship. Again, we have to remember the importance... That when we choose to get married to someone, we are choosing to become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh, a shared unified life. Again, when remember back in the early part of Genesis, it says that they were naked and unashamed, the man and his wife. Naked and unashamed. I understand there's a context of that where it refers to the fact that it, it's an unashamed thing to be physically naked in front of your spouse and, and those sort of things. But I think there's a dynamic there where beyond just the physical nakedness uh, and not being ashamed, that, that there's an emotional, there's a relational, the idea is nothing hidden. When somebody's naked, nothing's covered, nothing's being hidden. You know everything about me, you see everything about me, you're aware of everything about me. One of the things I always tell couples, whether young couples ready to get married or whether you know uh, adults further along in life, I always tell couples, listen, if you still desire any ounce of personal privacy, you're not ready to get married. If you want personal privacy still, you're not ready to get married. Because when you choose to get married and commit yourself to another person on that level, you choose to forsake all your privacy. There's no privacy about your spending. There's no privacy about your bank account. There's no privacy about what you do and don't do. There's no privacy about what's going on at work or what's going on in relationships or how you're doing or how – it's all open. And it needs to be open because you're functioning as a unit and that is critical. That is absolutely critical. I caution you, if you are hiding something from your spouse, you better uncover it. The sooner rather than later. And if you're in the habit of doing that, I caution you repent. Be careful of that. It's a very, very dangerous and a very destructive thing. And here in this family dynamic and this marriage relationship, look at the incredible you know, jeopardy that is being brought to this marriage relationship. Her husband's saying things because he's not aware of what the wife is doing. And it happens both ways. As a husband, we shouldn't be hiding things from our wives. As wives, we should certainly never be hiding things as well from husbands either. So, he does not know. He makes this emphatic statement. Hey, whoever has your gods, if somebody does... Because he's thinking no one does... Put him to death, he says. And Laban went into... Notice, Jacob's tent. You Notice where he thought they were first. <laughs> he goes right into Jacob's tent first. Because he thinks this guy's the one that's the crook. And then, he went into Leah's tent, his eldest daughter... And then into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. And at this point, no doubt, Jacob's ears are probably just steaming. He's just going from tent to tent, and he's thinking, I can't believe this guy's still on a witch hunt. I can't believe believe he's still looking, thinking that actually I have his stuff. And he's just getting more and more upset, no doubt, because he's going through three or four tents. Still, he's not found the gods. Verse 33, And then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent... Now Rachel, verse 34, had taken the household idols and put them in a camel's saddle and she sat on them. So she's got them in the saddle and she's sitting there uh, on top of them. Again, she notice she has what she has done wrong. She's covering it. She's trying to cover her sin. She's trying to cover what she's done to keep it hidden so she doesn't get caught now because she's in jeopardy of it coming to surface. And Laban searched all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me so she says again father no disrespect I would get up and greet you as I customarily would but she says my you know my monthly menstrual cycle is here so therefore that's why I'm sitting here like this it's why I can't get up and rise to you know hug you or embrace you so she uses this as a lie to try and hide what's taking place I'm, I'm having my monthly period she says I can't get up and greet you right now and he searched but he did not find the household idols and look at the look at the problem escalating now verse 36 then Jacob was angry and he rebuked Laban and Jacob answered and said to Laban what is my trespass and what is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me although you have searched all my things what part of your household things have you found Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that they may judge between us both. So he is very upset now and now is beginning to become confrontational towards Laban, his father-in-law. Verse 38, again, and notice what happens. L- look how when you hold things in, it doesn't last forever. But, you know, it's just so much better to just talk about stuff and to just say what you need to say because pro- for 20 years he's been burying this stuff down. For about 20 years, he's really been bugged about some of the things that have been happening among the family dynamics and relationships. But he's probably just been swallowing it and swallowing it. Well, guess what? Eventually, you can can only swallow vomit so long. Eventually, eventually it's coming out. You you can only keep it down so long. And and he is so upset and angry and nauseated over what's happened between he and his father-in-law, who also was his employer... That at this point, he just lets it all out at once. He says, these 20 years I've been with you and your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young. In other words, I've taken incredible care of your flock. Not even one miscarriage has taken place among the flock. And I have not eaten the rams of your flock. Which according to, again, culture in that ancient time, the one who shepherded the flock did have right to partake of some of the benefits of the flock. So again, he says again, I I had the right to do that, but I forsook that right. He says I did not take advantage of that right of partaking ever of a meal among the animals that I was tending when I was away on trips, away from home. He says I've never eaten of the rams of your flock. In other words, he found another way to sustain himself. That which was torn by beasts, I didn't bring to you. And again, if an animal was killed among the flock, they had to bring a portion of it back to present the fact that you know it was actually attacked by another animal and not just stolen. He says, I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. And there I was in the day the drought consumed me and the frost by night and sleep departed from my eyes. So he says, you know, you've worked me to the bone Freezing cold in the drought of summer. I've, I've lost sleep serving you. And thus I've been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters. Six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. And unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed, God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And what do you think about that? He's like, what do you think about those apples? Phew! You know, all right, <laughs> he got all that out of his system now. So, But again, just shows you how eventually it's going to come out. It's going to come out. And again, is necessarily what Jacob's saying wrong? No. Everything he's saying was factual and they were just things that were bothersome and, and and upset him that he had been holding in and eventually because he never spoke about them they just came out they probably came out in a lot more of an angry upset you know hotly mannered tone than they would have needed to be if he would have just discussed them as they progressed along in the relationship so he just you know unleashing his frustrations but again verse 42 shows you Jacob's awareness He says, God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And again, when you're going through stuff, God sees. God's aware if you're being afflicted and mistreated by a family member. God's aware if you're being cheated in your job place and taken advantage of. And, And God sees the labor of your hands and he'll reward you. And again, the Bible tells us in Colossians and Ephesians that we are to work not just for the eye service of men... But that we are to work as unto the Lord, who will reward us for the work that we do, and, and to trust that he will take care of us. And here, again, Jacob realized that. Remember, he said to his wives, your father changed my wages ten times, but he said back in verse 7, but God didn't allow him to hurt me. And again, God sees. Yes, people are going to mistreat us in this life, but the wonderful thing is God sees that, he's aware of that, and he can still intervene to protect us, to preserve us, and even prosper us in our lives when we're being personally taken advantage of. Well, verse 43, Laban then responds, saying to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters, and these children, the idea that grandchildren, are my children. I'm suing you for grandparental rights. You know, people say that kind of stuff nowadays. These children are my children, he says, and this flock is my flock, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do to these my daughters and to their children whom you've born? Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar, and Jacob said to his brethren, go and gather some stones, bring them together so we can set up a, a memorial pillar here, he says. And they took stones, and they made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. That's how guys solve stuff. Don't you like that? You know. <laughs> We need to, we need, I'll tell you what, let's just, let's eat. You know, they, <laughs> everything always gets better when guys eat. So they just, they make this kind of stone, uh, heap of stones there, and they share a meal over this mound of stones. And Laban called it Jagar Sadutha, which is an Aramaic term, which literally means the heap of witness. But Jacob, interesting, used the Hebrew term, same meaning, calling it uh, Galeed. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid. Also Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take otherwise besides my daughters, in other words, if you mistreat them, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Now, uh, again, this word Mizpah here, which again literally means you know to watch or to oversee. Unfortunately, a lot of people have taken this term Mizpah and wanting to get overly sentimental, they've kind of dressed it up as like a nice thing, you know, that that to, to say Mizpah is a blessing. The truth of the matter, if you understand the context of what Jacob and Laban are having happen between the two of them here, uh, this was the complete opposite of that. Basically, what they're doing is they're making a mound of stones and saying, look, you're going to go back to your land and I'm gonna go back to my land and this stone is the line between you and I and since I can't be over there and keep my eye on you, God's eye's on you, and if you do anything, God's gonna take care of you. Well, yeah, I won't come over on your side, but God's gonna and that's the idea here. The Lord will watch between me and you. You know, my eyes not on you, but God's eye's on you, and I'm gonna make sure that You know, if you do anything that God is witness and he's going to deal with you severely. So if somebody says Mizpah to you, it doesn't necessarily mean a good thing. Unfortunately, we've spiritualized it in the way that we shouldn't have. This was more of a, you know, thing where they did not trust one another. The idea is, but again, knowing that God would be witness to what both of their activities were. So Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar which I've placed between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. This is the boundary line. You stay on your turf, I'll stay on my turf. We'll be peaceful and go our separate ways. And then the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judged between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And then early in the morning Laban arose, again kissed his sons and daughters, his children and grandchildren, and blessed them. And then Laban departed and returned to his place. So we now have the separation now of Jacob. And Laban, interesting and again beautiful to see that after a very tense time, that Jacob wisely retreats. It tells us here in verse fifty-four that Jacob offered a sacrifice to the Lord on a mountain and called his brethren together, and they stayed all night on the mountain. So again, just again shows me some of the wisdom of what Jacob had regarding his relationship with the Lord. That after a tense, contentious time. He just pulls away, goes up to a little mountaintop retreat, it seems, takes his uh, some of his men away with him, and they offer a sacrifice to the Lord. They have a time of worship to sort of get refocused, and the next day they part company and go their separate ways. So Laban now returns back to Pat and Aram. Jacob now continues to journey forward to go back to his homeland there in Canaan, Verse 1 of chapter 32 says, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanim. So much like about 20 years prior to this time, back in remember Genesis 28, where God revealed himself to Jacob. And remember it says that Jacob saw This vision of a ladder extending up into the heavens and it says the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And Jacob said, this place shall be called Bethel, the house of God. And he says, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. And Jacob had this revelation from God whereby he became keenly aware of the reality of the spiritual realm. That there was another realm and dimension beyond what he was seeing and experiencing with his physical eyes coexisting and God let him see into the spiritual realm for a minute. And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending and angelic activity taking place. Well, once again, at this pivotal moment in his life, God gives him another experience like this. As he's on his way now back to his homeland and keep in mind, what is part of what you think is going through the mind if you're Jacob at this time in returning back to his homeland he's certainly thinking about the fact that oh my goodness I cleared the tension with Laban but I got a real big problem with Esau back at home because the last time I saw him he was hot on my trail to get out of our homeland because he said I'm gonna kill you and he realizes 20 years have passed but remember in those 20 years when he departed, his mother said to him, Listen, depart, and when your brother finally calms down, I'll send for you to bring you back home. Well, it's been 20 years, and no postcards come from Mama saying, Your brother's happy now. You can come back home. He's got no word from back home. As far as he knows, his brother has been stewing for 20 years, waiting for the opportunity to see him and get his hands around his neck because of the anger That transpired between the two of them because of Jacob, again, stealing his birthright and his blessing as well. So Jacob's, he's nervous. There's fear resonating in his heart. He's journeying towards a place that God has called him to and he knows. Again, the Lord told him, return back to your homeland. I'll be with you. When he left, God said to him, look. I'll bring you back to this place, and I'll be with you, and I'll bless you, and I'll take care of you, and I'll keep you. And he knows that he's following the will of God. He knows that he's pursuing God's plan, but notice there's not an absence of fear. He still realizes there are threatening, dangerous things as a part of following God's plan. And can I just tell you, listen, to follow the will of God and to pursue the plan of God for your life does not mean... That everything is going to be easy and there's going to be an absence of intimidating, fearful, threatening things. Again, when God called the children of Israel eventually to go into the promised land, there were giants in the land. There were threatening, fearful, scary things. In fact, unfortunately, it was that fear of the giants in the land that made them forsake the call and the plan of God upon their lives and have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years Because they couldn't reconcile, God has called us to do this. Yes, there are huge giants we are facing. There are obstacles, things that are threatening, that can destroy us, that are intimidating us, and we will rightly admit that. But nonetheless, God has called us. And so we will walk forward in faith and trust God to deal with the giants, to conquer our enemies, to fight our battles. And that's such an important thing. It's okay to be afraid to follow the will of God. It's okay to have a sense of fear and apprehension. Again, that's what causes us to live by faith. We live by faith. And sometimes following God's plan means that we're going to have to face some fears. And we're going to have to stare things down and be willing to trust God to work on our behalf. And Jacob here is certainly rightly concerned. And again, I love the Lord's you know, again, condescending to meet him where he's at. It says as he went his way, it just tells us, and again, we don't have any details. The angels of God just met him and Jacob saw them. So somehow God again opens his eyes. He sees a camp of angelic beings and it causes him to say, notice, this is God's camp. In other words, I'm not alone. You know, I'm not in this camp all by myself. God's, this is God's camp. And God's presence is with me, and God's protection is with us, and we're not alone in this process. And he has this visual experience where he senses the angels of God. Again, the Bible says, Hebrews 1, that they are, you know, ministering spirits set to aid or help the heirs of salvation. This is part of the, the purpose of angelic beings. They are sent to help God's children, to protect us, I think to watch over us at times, to keep us from danger... And Jacob now senses their presence. This reminds me of a passage in 2 Kings chapter 6 where in the days of Elijah, the city was surrounded by enemies. And as they got up that morning, it seems that Elijah went out and his servant that was with him got up early. And he looked over the wall and he saw the city surrounded and he started panicking. And he was terrified. And, and he runs back in afraid. In fact, let me read to you 2 Kings 6:15 to 17 It says, When the servant, the man of God, arose early and went out, there was the army surrounding the city with chariots and horses. And his servant said to Elijah, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elijah answered and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray. Open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Again, just what a beautiful scene. The servant comes out. He sees the city surrounded chariots, and again, just an entire army surrounding the city, and he's thinking, oh my goodness, we're doomed. What are we going to do? We're dead. And, And Elijah, you know, here he comes out. You know, and he's going, Master, what are we going to do? We're going to die. And he's, he's hitting the panic button. And Elijah goes, well, What are you afraid of? There's way more people on our team than there is. On, what are you talking about? And he says, Lord, open his eyes. Help him to see. Lord, help him to be able to see through the lens of the Spirit. And then his eyes are open and he realizes he's all the angelic army surrounding. The city and around this actual army that was threatening them. And again, how beautiful this reality. And, and how much I think at times one of the things God wants to do to us is open our eyes. You know, we so often, guys, we see things from the natural perspective. And we just see the circumstances and we see things from the natural eye. And, and, and the Lord at times desires to open our eyes and say, well, you need to see things from a spiritual perspective, an eternal perspective, And see the reality that the the dynamic and dimension of the realm of the spirit is very much active. And God is at work. Again, the Bible says if God is for us, the implied idea is he is. Who can be against us? And, and, And here Jacob gets this encouragement. This is God's camp. He's met and he sees these angels and he calls that place Mahanim, which literally means a double camp. The idea is the camp of angels there with his camp of individuals and Jacob verse 3 sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir the country of Edom and he commanded them verse 4 saying speak thus to my lord Esau thus your servant Jacob says I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now notice he says I have oxen donkeys flocks male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord. Talk about trying to schmooze there with his brother. To tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. So, interesting. And this is, again, this is the thing that God is trying to work out of the system of Jacob. This guy shifted gears from the spirit to the flesh (laughs) faster probably than some of the quickest race car drivers can work their way through gears on a racetrack. Here, God just allowed him to see what? A whole camp of angels surrounding his camp and caravan, and as soon as he gets to the border of Esau's homeland, the country of Edom, what does he do? He starts resorting to his own devices, thinking, you know what, maybe I better... You know, I I better try and get a plan in action here to make sure that I get my brother, you know, prepared to meet me. And, and, And so what he does, he starts to send messengers ahead saying, you know, look, I've been away for 20 years. But listen, bro, he says, I want you to know. I've got oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I've sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. In essence, he's saying, listen, I don't want anything from you, Esau. I'm not going to steal from you this time. I promise I have plenty. In fact, I have something to give back to you. And what he's doing is trying to inform his brother in advance. I'm not here to take anything from you. I'm not going to invade your territory. I know usually I'm, I'm in the habit of stealing things from you. But the past 20 years, I've done really well for myself. I have plenty. I have sufficient and ample animals and my own herds. And he says, I just want to find favor in your sight. I'm not going to take anything from you. Verse 6, so then the messengers returned to Jacob, coming back to him now from Esau, saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. And his heart must have dropped, and 400 men are with him. Oh, (laughs) 400 men. That sounds like an army of soldiers. This guy isn't planning on just killing me. (laughs) He's planning on killing everybody with me. He's got 400 soldiers with him. Again, he's thinking, "Uh uh-oh. The problem is here, he gets a simple piece of information And he interprets it according to his own understanding without having all the facts. And he drastically assumes the wrong thing. He hears 400 men are with him. He assumes that that means 400 armed soldiers who are coming to kill him. We'll see by the time we get to the next chapter, Esau's not even angry anymore. Those 400 men aren't sent to kill him. As soon as Esau sees him, they embrace and and there's reconciliation. And again, what happens? He gets a small piece of information and he just assumes the worst rather than thinking it could mean anything else. And many times we need to be really careful. We hear a certain fact about something and instantly we, with our own perception, determine and interpret something to mean what we think it means Maybe because of past experiences, so we automatically think, if that guy is coming with 400 men, that means this, because I know what my past experiences have been with this person. And let me caution you, be careful, please be careful of letting past experiences with someone or some situation make you interpret presently everything you see and hear about a person according to the rose-colored lenses of your past experiences. Because you can be drastically wrong. First of all, let me blow your mind. People change. You have, haven't you? And you've got to give other people the freedom and opportunity to change. Maybe they were this way before, but God's in the business of changing people. And if anywhere in the body of Christ as God's children, we of all people should be individuals that are willing to extend the grace of God at times to at times As love says, love believes all things. It hopes all things. The idea is, yes, that may have been who they were, and maybe they didn't change. Time will tell that. But God's in the business of changing people. And don't just take your simple perception of one thing that you hear and instantly calculate in your mind it means one thing about a person when really maybe that's not even true of them Or about them or what may transpire again. And this is just a real subtle device that so often the devil uses, again, to ruin family relationships, to ruin relationships among people. You know, even in the body of Christ, I see it take place. And again, we need to be careful of that. Jacob interprets it, oh no, he begins to panic and get afraid, and there really was nothing even to be afraid of. There was no need for it. It was his own perceptions. Notice verse 7. It tells us clearly. So Jacob hearing 400 men. are coming with his brother. Was look. Greatly afraid. And distressed. And he didn't have to be afraid and distressed. His brother really did not have intentions to harm him. We see that as the story unfolds. But again he's reacting. So therefore he divides the people with him. The flocks and the herds and camels. Into two different companies. And he said, "Notice here he is putting his plan into action. If Esau comes with one company and attacks it, then the other company, which is left, will escape. So again, he, he here he is shifting, taking control again. All right, I, I got to come up with a plan. I got to divide. If, if this is a typical." plan many times in the mid-eastern culture if you felt you were going to be attacked you would separate your company you would separate your caravans separate your supplies and your family so that if worst case scenario you got attacked one group could get away and there was some measure of preservation while another group was being destroyed so he breaks apart his company he separates them into two groups saying if Esau attacks one company we'll at least we'll be able to preserve the other half of our family and we can escape while the one part of the family is being attacked. And again, notice, if Esau attacks, he's thinking that Esau is going to attack him. And that's not what Esau was going to do. And un- unnecessarily, he was afraid and distressed over things he didn't have to be afraid and distressed over. And I tell you, when we have wrong perceptions and we get one little piece of information and we interpret it according to a past experience with somebody or a prior situation – that's what's going to happen. You're going to be stressed out. And, oh, my goodness. What's going to happen now? And all For nothing, maybe. It may be for absolutely nothing. And we need to just eliminate this stress upon our own lives, the fears that we often have. Again, what does it boil down to? Trust the Lord. Just trust the Lord. Trust the Lord to work in your life and trust God to work in other people's lives. I'm not saying don't be wise and discerning. But give people the grace to change. Expect the best in love. And just let God be God in situations. And here he's, again, plotting and scheming here in this whole situation rather than just living by faith. Verse 9, Jacob at least finally, after a little bit of scheming, says, well, maybe I ought to pray too. Verse 9, Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Lord, you told me, Return to your own country and to your family and I'll deal well with you. Now, that's a wise part of prayer. He's reminding God of his word. It's a good way to pray. Take note of that. Lord, you told me to do this. I'm just doing what you told me to do, God. You told me, return to your country and I'll deal well with you. Verse 10, this is good humility. I'm not worthy of the least of all your mercies, of all the truth that you've shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with just my staff, And now I've become two companies again, a humble omission to recognizing God's blessing on his life, that God had blessed him, that God had prospered him. He said, when when I first crossed over, he said, Lord, I, I had nothing. I came empty handed. And he says, but God, you have blessed me coming with an empty hand to start with nothing. And he says, and now look, I actually have enough to separate into two separate companies, two groups Because you've blessed me so greatly and I'm not worthy of the least of it, he says. Verse 11, his cry, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. Notice, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered my multitude. So he's just again reminding God of his word, reminding God of his promises. God, you told me to return. I'm just doing what you asked me to do. You told me to come to this place, Lord. I'm following your plan and your will. And he says, "Look, if if my brother attacks me and kills me and kills my family, what about that uh what about that plan about the nation? If we all die, there's no nation." So he says, "Lord, You need to intervene. He says, Lord, you need to deliver me. And I appreciate, again, the honesty and the humanness the Bible shows us of, again, a man of God. Verse 11, he says, I'm afraid. I fear him, God. I'm afraid. God, what I can see with my natural eyes, it don't look good. It looks like that the ship is ready to crash and burn. Lord, I did what you asked. I came to where you told me to. And, Lord, I'm not seeing a whole lot of uh, optimistic outlook so far. <laughs> Lord, this is looking pretty bleak. And, Lord, this doesn't seem to line up with what your call and your plan and your covenant and your promise was. So, Lord, I'm just trusting your word. And, Lord, you got to intervene here. But, Lord, I'm afraid, he says. And you know, And I think that's so wonderful because God can see what's going on in our hearts. We don't have to try and dress ourselves up. Look more spiritual, look more spiritual and and, and strong. If you're afraid, tell God you're afraid. If you're concerned, tell God you're concerned. And one of the best ways to pray is honestly and to set the word of God back before the Lord and say, Lord, but this is what your word says. And you honor your word because you're a covenant-keeping God. And I'll tell you, some of the most effective prayers we can pray Is simply praying God's word back to him. And Jacob is asking now for God's intervention. Verse 13 says So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand, notice, as a present for Esau, his brother. Again, he prays, and what's he do again? He goes right back to plotting again. He prays, and instead of just waiting to see what God does, this is his weakness. He starts plotting and scheming. The idea is he's always using something as a backup plan. Well, I'm going to pray. God, trust me. Deliver me. God, do what you need to do. And just in case you don't, what kind of plan should I have as a backup to make sure that I can work it out and make sure you know, I, it happens? And, and again, this was Jacob's problem. He was a self-sufficient, extremely independent individual who always knew how to take care of things himself, and that was a real problem for him. His own strength was really his biggest weakness. So he now, look what he does now, verse 14, he starts to create these offerings for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 29 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels, with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 male donkeys and 10 foals. That's 580 animals. It gives you an idea how prosperous this guy was that he could afford to unload 580 animals just as a gift to say I'm sorry to his relative. That's a lot of animals. 500 and, and this is just like a I'm sorry present. Just 580 animals of his flock, he just put, and it doesn't even hurt him. It just gives you an idea of how much God had really blessed and prospered Jacob. And he delivered them, verse 16, to the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself and said to the servants, here's what I want you to do. And the idea here is five successive droves of animals went before him. Pass over before me, put some distance between the successive droves of animals. And he commanded the first one, saying, when Esau, my brother, meet you and ask you, saying, Hey, to whom do all these animals belong, and where are you going with the ideas with these flocks, and whose are these animals in front of you? Then they were to say to Esau, Well, actually, they're your servant Jacob's, and this is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, also he is behind us. So he commanded the second and the third. And all who followed the drove saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is coming behind us, for he said, notice verse 20, I will appease him with a present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So what Jacob's doing is he's trying to gradually, sort of with a gift, call it what you want, a gift, a bribe, whatever, He's trying to gradually, with each successive present to his brother, trying to appease any anger. And he's thinking, hey, by the time five or six presents get to this guy, maybe his you know, animosity and anger level will kind of come down each time. Because every time, hey, this is a present from your brother. Wow, really a present from my brother. Yeah, he's coming. He's, he's on his way journeying back. Okay, well, wow, it's really nice of him. Man, it's, it's a lot of animals. Then all of a sudden, a few minutes later, here comes the next group of animal. Hey, who are you with? These are actually Jacob's. He said, this is a present for you. He doesn't need it. Just take him. And he's on his way. Wow. this double blessing, double jeopardy. This guy's, you know, and he's just trying to, again, what's he trying to do? He's trying in his own efforts, in his own intentions, trying to work out something on his own to try and resolve an issue because of what? His own insecurities his own fears and his own insecurities. So he's trying to utilize his own efforts. Again, the wealth he has and the things that he can use instead of trusting God. He's trying to work out the situation to appease his brother. He's saying, perhaps he will accept me. Verse 21, so the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took his two wives his two female servants and his eleven sons, and he crossed over the ford, Jabbok, And he took and sent them over the brook and he sent over what he had and then, interesting verse 24, Jacob was left alone. So, at this point, he's sent all the five successive droves ahead. It's coming to the end of the evening. He knows that he's closing in the gap between he and his brother. He's probably got one more night to himself before he meets his brother. He's nervous. He's concerned. He's apprehensive. He feels like he's running out of options. He's grasping for straws to do all he can to preserve himself and his own fears and insecurities. And interesting, it says here now in these verses what he does... Is he sends his family over on the other side, and he stays on the other side of the J-Book there, and he just spends some time alone. Now again, what was he doing? Was he trying to, again, self-preservation? Did he want to think through something? I need, you know, again, when you got 11 kids, sometimes you need a little time alone to, you know, maybe think, I need to think through, I need another plan, because, so... You and the kids go over on that side of the water. I need a good night's sleep. And he's staying on the other side to have some solitude to think through some things. I'll tell you what was happening. He was unaware of the fact that what God was doing was putting him into a quiet place all by himself and getting him alone because God was about to wrestle this guy into submission. And he has no idea, interesting, as he's working his little master plan, God's working his master plan in a way sovereignly overlapping everything that he's doing and God's orchestrating everything perfectly to get Jacob to the place where he is alone. Because he's the kind of guy that God has to get all alone to wrestle into submission and to bring him to the place where God ultimately wants to bring him where God can really bless this guy. And ultimately what he needed was God to break this stubborn, self-reliant, self-sufficient spirit to bring him to the place where he needed to be. In fact, time's not going to allow, but let's just read verse 24 to 30. We're not just, I don't want to ram through this, but look what happens. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched, that is, and this is the Lord, we see as we go through the passage, the Lord touched the socket of his hip, and it was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go for the day breaks. But he, Jacob then said, I'm not letting you go now unless you bless me. Again, he's come to that place of brokenness where he realizes, Lord, if you don't bless me, I'm done. Because, Lord, I've got nothing left in my bag of tricks. And he said to him, what is your name? And Jacob said to him, Jacob, again, which meant what? Heel catcher, conniver. And God said to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, which seems to indicate governed by God. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed them there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. Notice again, Jacob said, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Again, Jacob knew who this was. It's very clear here that this was an encounter that he himself was having with God. Verse 24, that man that wrestled with him, I believe was another pre-incarnate appearance, of the Lord Jesus Christ where Jesus comes and the Lord interesting wrestles with someone who has just got a stubborn streak someone who who wasn't easy to submit and to surrender and, and and we'll look at this more in depth next time but I love to see again the faithfulness of the Lord how he pursues us and he will do whatever it takes to bring us to that place where ultimately He can do what he wants to do in our lives. And do you know what he wants to do in our lives? He wants to bless us. He wants to bless us. And if he has to break us to bless us, he's willing to do that. If he has to cripple us, in some sense, to crown us, the Lord is willing to do that. To me, it's so beautiful to see, again, Jacob's left alone. And then it says, notice, the man wrestled with him. Please take note of that. We hear all this talk and verbiage. Oh, Jacob wrestled with God. Jacob wrestled with God. Jacob didn't wrestle with God. God wrestled with Jacob. That's a big difference. You know, oh, Jacob wrestled with him. No. God wrestled Jacob. And God wrestles people into submission. You know, too often we think, oh, that's, that's what we oh I was wrestling with God. I wrestled with God in prayer all night. Well, that, that sounds awful spiritual. But the truth of the matter is usually I understand God's the one that's the initiator. We love him because he first loved us. (laughs) And the Lord is the pursuer. The Lord is the one who comes after us. And whether it's the Lord wrestling somebody's heart into submission that they would accept Jesus Christ and surrender and submit to him as Lord and Savior. Or whether it's you and I who are already believers and we still got some streaks and some stubbornness and some self-sufficient attitudes and the Lord says, man... I want to bless your life. I want to do some really good things in your life. But I got to wrestle some things out of your strong, stubborn spirit first to get you the place where I can bless you and do the things I want to do in your life. But praise the Lord that he is willing to get us to that place and get us alone and to wrestle with us. First place wrestling shows up in the Bible and it's so beautiful. I love to see it. Maybe wrestling's biblical. I don't know. You know Take that for what it is, but that the Lord wrestles with our hearts. Wonderful, wonderful thing. Has God been wrestling with you? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads. We'll pray and close our time. Father, thank you for who you are. And thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to pursue us and, Lord, to wrestle with us, whether to bring us into submission to Jesus as Savior and Lord or whether it's working with us even after we're a believer Lord I thank you and ask that you would continue to wrestle me and every one of us in this room as much and as often as you need to that we would come to that place of greater submission of greater surrender of deeper dependency upon you that you would be able Lord to bless us with all the good and wonderful things you want to do in our lives. Lord, work in our lives. We ask and invite you to do such in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. amen.